What's up, everybody? Good morning. Now let's try that again. What's up, Doro Hope? Good morning. Yeah. I'm here to do one thing, and that's to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Yeah, hallelujah. Well, my name is Luis. Uh, those of you that don't know me, probably see me around. I'm the intake coordinator for the Union Gospel Mission located in downtown Portland. Uh, we base our recovery and life change through Jesus Christ. So if you know anybody, somewhere, family, relatives, that's struggling with drugs, addiction, or just trying to figure life out, you can get a hold of me, one of the pastors here at the church, and we can talk about what we can do to start saving souls for the kingdom, amen? So here's the passage on a Mark 8, 27 through 33. Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Cesare Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and begin to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So everybody that's listening and watching, today let's have the things in mind of God, amen? Well, hey, my name's Cameron. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. Great to be with you. Um, and we are doing what we've been doing for, uh, I guess, a year and a half with some breaks. We started the Gospel According to Mark last February. Oh, so it's like exactly a year. I don't know why. Not a year and a half. One year. One year. We've been in the Gospel of Mark. We've been taking some breaks. But uh, we have reached today, today, the halfway point of the Gospel of Mark. Um, and this passage and the next two we're going to look at, so this week, next week, the week after that, um, are, are, are seriously, I think I've mentioned this before, but they're like the fulcrum or the tipping point of the gospel. Um, from here on in the book, things generally move from kind of mystery as the book is kind of showing you Jesus, but not, you know, it, it, it's so many people aren't understanding what's going on, including the disciples, to clarity. From cyclical ministry in and around Judea, in and around uh, Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, to now, this is marking a shift where it's going to be this focused drive toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. Uh, from showing who Jesus is and what kind of king, kingdom he's bringing, showing, to telling you and explaining the significance of these things. And so this short center section that we could even call the turn in the Gospel of Mark, it begins with a pop quiz, a pop quiz from Jesus. And... There is nothing worse than a pop quiz, except a pop quiz in like churchy settings, <laughs> you know? 
I grow. I was I was a student in youth group, and there was nothing worse than like my my youth pastor or small group leader like, all right, Bible quiz, guys. And you're like, oh no, this is not good. And I didn't know anything about anything, and then just felt so much shame for not knowing, you know, how many books are in the Bible or what. I don't know. It was always some like random, random factoid that I didn't know. I'm not bitter about it whatsoever. Um, so Jesus does that to the disciples here. Pop quiz. The pop quiz comes right there in verse 27. On the way, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? That's the question. And this is in the context of of, uh, these villages outside of the city of Caesarea Philippi, a city well-known. It had this grotto, like this cave, that, that was the site of worship for the pagan god Pan, this Greek god of nature. And in this, in this town, there was a temple dedicated to Caesar, the Roman emperor, as well. So just on the outskirts of that town, Jesus asked this question. And the disciples give him, give him the answer. Here's, here's what people say. Here's, here's some of the ideas that are being floated around. We've been eight chapters in the mark, perhaps around two-plus years of Jesus' ministry. Um, so Jesus said, okay, guys, stop. What's the word? What are people saying? What's the buzz out there? What's the talk around the water cooler about who I am, what I'm up to? And they, they answer. They say, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, that Old Testament prophet. Or others say just, just some, one of the other, other prophets. So their answer is basically that the one common answer to this question, who is Jesus, is that he's a prophet. That's what all those have in common. He's he's a prophet. Someone who speaks on behalf of God, brings a message from God. Um, In Mark, so far, we've seen a lot of other ideas floated, and this is roughly in reverse order from what we've most recently looked at back towards the beginning of the book. But the Syrophoenician woman, she declared him Lord. This this Gentile woman, um, she declared Jesus Lord. First, First character in the story, if I recall. Various other people would have known him as teachers as they traveled to see him teach long distances, some listening to him for as much as three days teaching in one go. Uh, Herod and his associates, we read about this story a couple months ago, as they were debating who Jesus was, they gave this exact answer. They were talking, they said, maybe he's John the Baptist, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's a prophet. Uh, The people from Nazareth, if you remember that story, from Jesus' hometown, they had a hard time seeing who Jesus was because they just kind of dismissed him as, oh, the hometown boy. And the, the subtext of what they said to him, uh, they, as they discussed him, they were like, oh, isn't this Mary's son? The context, the subtext there being, isn't this the bastard son of Mary? We, we know your origin story, Jesus, and we're not impressed with, with, with these appeals to you. You're making us some kind of pious teacher of, of, of true Israelite religion. Uh, the scribes, in one of the confrontations Jesus had with them, they accused Jesus of being possessed by Satan. They saw him, they saw his teachings, they saw what he was claiming to do, they saw the kind of authority he was taking, and they said, he's possessed by Satan, he's in league with Satan, he's some kind of evil demonic sorcerer, that's how he does his miracles, that's how he casts out demons. There was a story earlier where Jesus' family Uh, saw Jesus teaching and they tried to get him because they said he was out of his mind. So Jesus' siblings, his mom, they thought, whoa, this thing has gone way too far. Jesus is crazy. 
and we need to bring him home. It's, it's, time, to, it's time to restrain what he's doing. This isn't okay. Uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups that hated one another, they found a common enemy in Jesus, so they conspired together to kill him. So for them, he was a death-worthy threat to both groups. The crowds have re- re- repeatedly responded to Jesus with amazement or awestruckness. They're, they're like, I don't know what this is, but I know it's amazing, and I'm just kind of drawn to it. Various sick people may have known him as the healer, as that reputation was getting out. But as we get further back to the beginning of the book, we see a couple other declarations. The demons in Mark 1.24 declare him the Holy One of God and the Son of God. Just the demons get that right. Even before that, Mark 1.11, when Jesus was baptized, the voice booming from heaven to Jesus declared him to be my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, the voice of God the Father. And then just before that in Mark 1.1, before the story begins, when Mark introduced the gospel, Mark says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the answer was given in the very first verse. Lots of answers have been given since, and now Jesus, at this point, brings the question to his disciples. These 12 men who've been traveling with Jesus, they've been trained by Jesus, they've been working with Jesus, they've been seeing amazing things, listening to his teachings constantly, probably lots of teachings they heard many times in different contexts. And finally the question comes, but who, who do the people say I am? And then, who do you say that I am? People can give all kinds of answers. Some of them might be right, some of them might be close, some of them might be way off. But who do you say that I am? This is the question the whole book has been building to. The disciples had journeyed with Jesus. They saw what he was like on the road. They peeked behind the curtain. And as is so often the case with religious leaders, you know, you don't often want to look too closely. You actually get a peek behind the curtain, and it's disappointing because what they preach does not line up with how they live. So the disciples had the front row most intimate seat to how Jesus actually was, even in private. They saw him teach. They saw him heal. They saw him provide for the hungry. They saw him proclaim the central message that the book started with, that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. So it's like Jesus at this point, the center point of Mark's gospel, he, he, he brings this question to him. In light of all that you've seen, are you ready? Are you ready to give an answer? Are you ready to decide? Are you ready to make a choice about the central matter of who I am? What is my identity? And Mark has designed his gospel to put that question to you here as well. Particularly if you've been a part of this church for a while, you've been working with us through the gospel of Mark, you've now heard almost, or all of eight chapters basically, preached, exposited, read aloud by members of the community, the question comes to you today. For anyone who picks up this ancient book, Mark, whether reading it quickly or studying it slowly and deliberately, right here Mark puts this question to his readers as much as Jesus was putting it to the twelve. What say you about Jesus? And this is the most, I say, I, I submit to you, this is the most important question in the world. This <laughs> sounds grandiose, but I think it's true. It's the most important question in the universe. It's the most important question in all of history, in all of philosophy, all of spirituality, and all of religion. 
20th century pastor A.W. Tozer, Tozer said that this, he said this fairly well-known quote. You've probably heard this at some point if you've been a Christian in America for any amount of time. Uh, it's in this brilliant little book called Knowledge of the Holy. He said, um, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Great quote. Or we could put it another way. If to have seen Jesus is to have seen God, as Jesus claims, then what you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. So today, right now, Sunday, February 3rd, Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) February 13th, in the year of our Lord, 2022. The quiz, the question of questions, the most important question you will ever be asked comes to you from the mouth of Jesus, transcribed by the ancient disciple Mark, written in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Who do you say that I am? question comes to you today. Peter gives an answer. Peter gives an answer. Verse 29. You are the Christ. Good answer or bad answer? What do you guys think? Good answer. Great. Thumbs up on that answer. Yeah. He says you're the Christ. Christ or Christos in the Greek, it translates this term, the term from the Hebrew Bible for Messiah. So you can think of Christ and Messiah. They're synonymous terms. They're synonymous terms. Christ means Messiah, which means the anointed one or the anointed king. It's an ancient Hebrew, Hebrew Bible concept. And so the Messiah or the Christ, this was a figure. We've talked about this a bunch across, across Mark, but it was, he was a figure that Jews began to anticipate in fulfillment of the various promises of God across the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. At this stage, there were actually a bunch of ideas. Sometimes we can flatten this. Like everyone would have, when they heard the word Messiah, they would have thought this one thing. There are kind of a, a, a number of kind of differently nuanced expectations for what Messiah would be like. But a lot of them had a lot of things in common. The core idea was that this would be the anointed king, the one who would sit on the throne of David, fulfill these promises that God made to David in particular about how his descendants were going to have this eternal throne and so on, combined with a whole bunch of other ideas about this person restoring God's kingly rule over Israel and the whole earth, that he would bring an end to their troubles and that ultimately he would put everything right. Like all these grandiose, lofty promises and hopes that people had for what God would do in the world and in their community as the people of Israel were wrapped up in this idea of the Messiah coming. So huge, huge idea. He's the one God would use to fulfill so many of the promises of, of restoration that God had made. And so Mark's been showing us, and I feel like every sermon for the last three months in Mark, uh, the, the, the lesson has been, so, therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. And maybe we were all starting to get bored of that idea. Like, okay, he did this other thing. And that means he's the Messiah. Okay, got it again. And he did another thing. That means he's the Messiah. And so we've kind of been spoiling the grand reveal every week, but that's all right. Preachers can do that. Um, nonetheless, here it is. Here it is. Mark's been showing us. Now he's telling us through the mouth of Peter for the first time since the first chapter. Jesus has been doing the things that the Messiah was supposed to do, and he is the Messiah. He's here. 
The Messiah's come, and it's this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who's done these things, who's from this place, who acts this way, who has these teachings. This is him. That's Peter's answer. Is this your answer? Is that your answer? I put to you right now, do you believe Jesus is the Messiah? Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the King. He is the promised one of God. Good. Well, Peter's right. Peter's right. Jesus tells them not to tell anybody. And that seems weird, because as Christians, I think we all have this, we, we all understand we're supposed to proclaim Jesus. We're supposed to share the good news. We're supposed to invite people into the life and joy and promises, salvation that he offers. But at this point in history, in redemptive history, it was, yes, you're right, and don't tell anybody. It's not time yet. We've seen that from Jesus as well. The time had not come for all things to be laid bare. Jesus still had more to do before he drew that kind of heat on himself that an open claim to Messiahship would bring upon him. So he, keep, he commands them to keep quiet. But the, Peter's confession is correct. You are the Christ. So Peter sees. Peter sees Jesus for who he is. And also Peter doesn't see. Let's keep reading. Verse 31. So he began to, cheat, to teach. You're the Christ. So Jesus says, yeah, okay, let me teach you about this. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again after three days rise again he must experience suffering he must experience rejection he must experience death and he must experience resurrection and you could actually easily imagine the disciples forgetting the resurrection part They're like yeah yeah resurrection but death what and notice it says this is, this is new in Mark. It says, he, he, verse 32, he said this plainly. So much of Jesus' communication so far has been kind of elliptical and kind of mysterious, and he's using metaphors and he's using parables. He just lays it out for them for the first time. Here's the deal. Yes, I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. I'm going to die. And don't miss, that's a little word you can miss here, but don't miss that word must. Verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and die and rise again. What this means is that Jesus' suffering and death were not incidental to his plan. It's not as though things could have gone some other way. This was the plan. Jesus knew clearly that these things were central to the mission that God had come to fulfill, that he had come to fulfill. And he was willingly about to walk towards them. It wasn't as though the rejection and death of Jesus took him by surprise. He had set his eyes, set his face stone cold toward Jerusalem and his death. He was willingly about to walk toward them. And this should disabuse us of the idea. There's an idea that's kind of popular um, among some of, some of Orthodox Christianity's critics, uh, honestly, both inside and outside the church, that, that the idea, this idea that the cross represents this idea of like, cosmic child abuse or something you know have you heard that like, the cross like the jesus atoning for the sins of the world on the cross is is a sick and twisted idea they would say that this hateful cruel god the father is taking out his rage against this unwilling innocent god the son who's about love and about peace and about justice god the father is this monster who's emptying his wrath on the son 
No. The whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons, eternally existing in a relationship of love, made this plan to rescue humanity without division or competing agendas. Yes, the Father did pour out the wrath on the Son, but it's the Godhead working in unison together in agreement. Now, obviously, Trinity is one of the most complicated, complex ideas in theology. Nonetheless, it's unity, not division. I love the idea, or, or the way Josh Butler, he used to be a, uh, a pastor here at, uh, in Portland at Imago Day. He has a really cool book called Pursuing God. He says, we need to recognize that Jesus is an active agent, not a hapless victim. He's not coerced or manipulated to the cross against his will. Jesus boldly declares, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus goes of his own volition to accomplish his purposes. He's taking down the destructive power of sin, death, and hell. Jesus is a lion and the cross is his prey. The cross is not happening to Jesus. Jesus is happening to the cross. And I think he gets the emphasis just right there. Jesus says, this is what must happen. This is my eternal plan, he says. Consider Hebrews 12, 2. It says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, but is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross was an excruciating, like, cosmic horror, okay? The one innocent human who's ever lived, the Son of God incarnated in human flesh, fully God, fully man, who lived perfectly obedient to the law, was executed, was executed by, by, by the very people he came to save. The one truly innocent was hung naked, stripped bare, beaten, bloodied on a Roman torture device designed for maximal pain and suffering and maximal humiliation. It's a cosmic horror. But for Jesus, for Jesus, there was an immeasurable, this Hebrews tells us, an immeasurable joy that motivated him to go to that horror willingly. And you know what that joy was? It was you. It was, the, it was the, the joy of saving a people to himself that he might not have to exist eternally apart from this people that he cherishes. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You are that joy. The people that he loves are that joy. Your salvation, embracing you as part of his family for all eternity, was the joy. So Jesus, here, he's combining in his answer. Peter says, you're the Christ. Yes, I am the Christ. But he's combining in his answer a bunch of well-known Jewish biblical archetypes of, of, of the Messiah, we talked about it, the Messiah figure, and then he, he throws in the Son of Man, which was kind of a related but kind of distinct idea, another man largely from uh, the book of Daniel. But a similar idea is this one who is going to come and restore things and put things right and restore proper worship in Israel. The Messiah, the Son of Man, yes, those are kind of related ideas. I get that. 
And then this other idea, controversially, the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, if you ever read that chapter, the one who was bruised for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. This whole, the one who's going to suffer in the place of another. Jesus throws that idea right in here as well. And that's where it gets weird for Peter. Because you're going to see, Peter's going to challenge Jesus here, and it's because he's like, okay, yeah, I, get, I have an idea of Messiah. I know what Messiah is supposed to do. Lots of good things. He's going to restore things. Yes, and son of, son of man from Daniel, but suffer? That doesn't fit the grid. You ever play the game 20 Questions? Or ever seen the little like, electronic version of it? I used to play this all the time in high school. So 20 questions, you, you get to ask 20, 20 yes or no questions to try to discern down to an answer. There was this little game. I have no idea how it worked. I'm still amazed by this thing. It's a little, like, it's a little game, a little ball. It has a little simple uh, like LED screen, and it has two buttons, yes and no. And it starts, and it asks you a question. It says, is the thing you're, trying to, you're thinking of a, is it um, an animal? Yes or no? Uh, yes. Is it uh, a mammal? Yes or no? And through 20 questions, it can almost without fail figure out what you're thinking of through 20 yes or no questions. Super cool. Well, of course, if you don't understand the question or you input a wrong data point, the thing's not going to get it right. And it's almost, I th- imagine this like this, like Peter's got Messiah. Okay. Is he uh, one who's going to be in the line of David? Yes. Is he going to be one who reigns on David's throne? Yes. Is he going to bring peace to Israel? Yes. Is he going to be for the good of the nations? Yes. Is he going to suffer and die? No. Of course not. That's not what Messiah does. Whatever's going on in Isaiah 53, that suffering servant guy, yeah, that's something else that God's talking about through the prophets. But that's not Messiah. Messiah is victorious. Messiah rules, Messiah reigns, Messiah comes in power. So immediately it's like, oh, well, this this doesn't work. This doesn't get us to the place we are assuming we need to go. So whatever it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, it doesn't, Jesus is saying here, it doesn't mean ease. It doesn't mean avoidance of suffering. It doesn't mean embrace by the religious establishment. It doesn't mean political victory. It doesn't mean an earthly kingdom now, at least not yet. So in the next passage, we're going to, next week, we're going to talk about the implications of having having a suffering Messiah for our lives, because in the very next verses, Jesus takes that idea and says, oh yeah, and by the way, if I suffer, you can expect that too. And Josh is going to open that up for us, but we'll we'll just put a pin on that for now, since we'll spend time there next week. But uh, we have a suffering Messiah, Jesus says. And Peter gets protective and fearful here, understandably so. He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. This is a strong word. He challenges Jesus strongly. It's like, surely Jesus has got to be mistaken about this thing. Suffer and die. What are you talking about? Peter's, it's almost like Peter's about to say, over my dead body, Jesus, will you die? I'll die before you need to die. And that's an understandable impulse Uh, but only because his understanding and our understanding is so incomplete. As Jesus says at the end of verse 33, it's it's that Peter is thinking exclusively in human terms, and humans think in very short-term terms. We think in very finite, narrow, incompletely. We arrogantly think with respect to how much we actually understand. 
our confidence misplaces or our, 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 our doesn't fit our, uh, our understanding. As Hebrews 14, or Proverbs 14.12 says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. So Jesus then rebukes Peter in even harsher terms. Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus says, no, Peter. This is how serious this is. He says, get behind me, Satan. He calls his chief disciple, the one that he's going to leave ostensibly with, with leadership in the early church, he calls him Satan. Too harsh? It's not here that, Peter, that Jesus is done extending grace to Peter, of course. Jesus is going to extend a lot more grace to Peter, even in his earthly ministry. But nonetheless, it is the case that Peter is acting just like Satan here. How? How? Well, he's tempting Jesus away from the road of suffering that the salvation of God's loved, beloved people is going to require for an easier and more comfortable road. This is so much like Jesus, uh, or like Satan tempting Jesus in the, in the wilderness. You remember that story? Mark shortened it, but in Matthew, we have a lot of detail of Satan basically, hey, do this, and uh, you know, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Well, Jesus is already entitled to the kingdoms of the earth. He is the Messiah. He's the king. He's the king of kings. But Satan's trying to get him to take this little shortcut that doesn't involve the suffering and the humiliation of the cross. Hebrews tells us Jesus was legitimately tempted in his earthly life. So perhaps what Peter's saying here is actually tempting to Jesus. Like, Jesus, no, you're not going to die. I'll protect you. You could imagine a part of Jesus' his fleshly side, like, that does sound kind of nice. Maybe, you know, think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there is any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be. Nonetheless, your will be done. It could be here that Jesus had this twinge of like, maybe we could go another way. Maybe I don't have to bear what I have to bear. So Jesus isn't playing around. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. That's Satan talk. That is satanic. That is satanic. And think of it this way. Though Peter's intentions are probably innocent, he just loves Jesus, wants to protect Jesus. If Jesus were to listen to Peter in this moment and avoid his rejection, avoid his suffering, avoid his death on the cross, Peter would be thwarting the eternal plan of God to bring salvation to humanity. He would be damning the entire human race in their sins. And we know, again, Jesus was tempted, though he never sinned. Maybe it was a tempting offer. Peter's idea. So Jesus, I think, was right to respond as harshly as he did. And thank God that he did respond this way to Peter. For your sake, for my sake, for the sake of all who've received salvation in Jesus. Thank God that Jesus did what was necessary to make the offer available to everyone. To everyone. Because Jesus didn't listen to Peter, the offer of salvation extends to any who would trust Jesus. Praise God. So that's the story. Very briefly, we could, we could spend hours and hours and hours chewing on this. Maybe you should this week. 
as you're alone with the word or in your community group or whatever. But I, I want to conclude with this thought. You may have seen the connection. I hinted at it. But Peter is, is here just like, in spiritual terms, the blind man we looked at last week, right? We talked about that idea of the blind man, that Jesus has to heal in two stages, or Jesus chooses to heal in two stages. He touches him once, and the man sees partially. I can kind of see, but people look like trees. It's blurry. It's fuzzy. It's, I can't make it out. So Jesus comes and touches him again, and then his sight is fully restored. We see that same dynamic here spiritually with Peter. Yes, he, see, he makes the ultimate confession. He's the first human character to make this confession, to correctly identify Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You are the anointed king that all of creation has been longing for. But you're also Satan, <laughs> says Jesus. Yes, you've identified, identified this correctly, but also you're trying to thwart the eternal plan of God to save humanity. An encounter with Jesus brought partial sight, but he still can't see it in full. It's the same dynamic. He rightly identifies Jesus as the Christ, but his preconceived notions of what the Messiah must be like are keeping him from truly seeing and following the real Jesus, the real Messiah in the moment. So maybe Peter had absorbed some of the common messianic expectations that there was certainly plenty that the, the Christ, the Messiah, was going to be this military conqueror. I'm sure you've heard that before. He's going to come. He's going to, he's going to raise up the troops. He's going to make Israel great again. He's going to vanquish their earthly enemies. At any rate, he's going to sit in a place of power and privilege and ease as he ruled. Maybe Peter was expecting the celebration of the, this is a good one, maybe Peter thought, oh, if I'm in tight with the Messiah, I can expect the celebration of the crowds for me when we come riding in. No, maybe I'll get a place of prominence next to the king. Maybe things are going to go really well for me. I've had a tough life as a Galilean fisher, fisherman. Hasn't been too glamorous, but things are about to change. My fortunes are looking up right now. But that wasn't the path that God had set for himself, that Jesus had set for himself. His plan was to save Israel and, and the rest of the nations, and it was going to happen through servanthood, through humility, through sacrifice, and yes, reje rejection, suffering, and death. Peter was ready to worship a God and follow a Messiah that acted according to Peter's plans and desires but worshiping a God that we've fashioned and controlled and manipulated isn't worshiping God. It's worshiping ourselves. And again, we had better not read a story like this and think for a second that we are above the impulses that Peter has here. The impulse to dictate and demand what the Christ must be like. And so I leave you with this question. What have you assumed Jesus must be like? Are there ways in which the authentic Jesus that we discover in the spirit-breathed pages of the scripture makes us uncomfortable? Are there aspects of who he is and what he calls us to that we're tempted to bend or avoid or reject? Are we trying to correct Jesus 
to bring them up to date with the assumptions and prejudices of our day and our time and our culture? Just to put a finer point on it, have you remade Jesus in your own image? When you worship, when you come here to worship Jesus, do you worship, are you really worshiping yourself? Here's the humiliating thing. The answer is yes for all of us at some point or another. That's true for me. I confess freely. And you know what? That's what the cross was for. That's what the cross was for. There is grace upon grace upon grace for our failings. We're all going to misunderstand and even willfully bend things about Jesus. And he says, my grace is sufficient for that too. But may God, by, his, by the power of his spirit, convicting our hearts and our minds, may he not leave us there. May he reveal where we're doing that if we're unaware. And may we repent. May we not be content with a counterfeit Jesus. I don't really, in my heart of hearts, want a Jesus that's just like Cameron. A Jesus would be terrible. <laughs> he really would be. So the question then, by the power of the Spirit, in light of this passage, is will we, today, maybe for the first time in some area or another, maybe something's come into mind, like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm self-aware now of some way in which I've been doing this with Jesus. Will we actually allow Jesus to subvert our expectations and demands? Will we follow the real Jesus wherever he leads, even if it's to the cross? Because it's always to the cross. Even if it's into suffering and hardship and self-denial and ostracism and being misunderstood, even death. Will we get behind him? Literally, get in line behind Jesus and follow where he's going. Knowing that the final answer is not suffering and death and the cross. The final answer is resurrection. The, the Christian story isn't just suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and then meaninglessness. That's just normal life. <laughs> Did you realize that? That's life on planet Earth in a materialist universe. Life is random and meaningless. You suffer a lot, and there's no greater purpose behind any of it. Then you just dissolve off into the ether. The answer with Jesus is dignified suffering for the good of others. That is not the end. The end is restoration to new life and the new heavens and the new earth with him reigning in an eternity future that's better than anything we could ever imagine on a remade earth with no sin, no sickness, no death, no injustice. The kind of life God intended in Genesis 1, Genesis 2. That's what he holds out. So we can suffer. We can suffer willingly with him, for him, empowered by him. And that's not the end. That's not the end. There's so much more. Amen? Yeah. All right. Let's pray.